Hello. Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to the Midtown Scholar Bookstore. My name is Catherine Lawrence, and I'm delighted to welcome you all here today, this Sunday afternoon. Thank you for joining us in Harrisburg for a special conversation with C-SPAN's Brian Lamb and Susan Swain, who have co-written their new book, The Presidents, Noted Historians Rank America's Best and Worst Chief Executives. I'd like to extend a special thank you to our local NPR affiliate, WITF, along with recording this conversation for rebroadcast on their radio station coming soon. WITF has selected the presidents as their joint pick of the month, along with us, and we're really pleased about that. We have copies for sale up at the cafe counter after the talk, and we're delighted to host a book signing with the authors after the event. We're so glad they could come up from DC for us today. It's now my great pleasure to introduce them for today's event, all of our speakers. Our interviewer will be Scott Lamar. You know him. He has worked in radio and television here for more than 40 years. He is the host and executive producer of the daily Smart Talk News and Public Affairs program on WITF 89.5 FM and 93.3 FM. With Lamar acting as executive producer, Smart Talk has won more than a dozen Pennsylvania Associated Press broadcast awards. A native of Coatesville, PA, Lamar has also worked as a broadcast manager, a news anchor, and sports play-by-play -play announcer. Brian Lamb is C-SPAN's founding CEO and longtime on-camera interviewer. Over the course of his illustrious career, Lamb has conducted thousands of interviews. I know I watch many on C-SPAN myself. He has received numerous honors and awards, including the Presidential Medal of Freedom and the National Humanities Medal. Thank you for coming today. Susan Swain is C-SPAN's co-CEO, and in addition to her senior management role at the network, has been an on-camera host for C-SPAN for more than 30 years, interviewing public officials, historians, and journalists for the Public Affairs Network. She lives in Washington, D.C. In the presidents, Lamb and Swain provide the complete rankings of our best and worst presidents, based on C-SPAN's much-cited historians' surveys of presidential leadership drawing upon interviews conducted over the years with a variety of presidential biographers, many of whom you've probably seen on C-SPAN. The book provides not just a complete ranking of our president, but stories and analyses that capture the character of the men, so far, who've held the office. From Abraham Lincoln's political savvy and rhetorical gifts to James Buchanan's indecisiveness, this book teaches much about what makes a great leader and what does not. Thank you to Brian, Susan, and Scott for taking time out of their busy schedules to visit Harrisburg. And without further ado, please join me in giving them a warm Harrisburg welcome. I'll have to uh, speak a little louder. That was good. How's that? All right, I'll speak a little louder. I'll project. Uh, but welcome to Harrisburg. Thank you. Good to be here. I'm a Pennsylvanian, so it's nice Where to are be you from? home. I grew up outside of Philadelphia. I went to school in Scranton, Pennsylvania. Okay, right outside. Montgomery I'm County. Okay. I'm, I'm not a, a Pennsylvanian. <laughs> 
I was gonna say, yeah. <laughs> We're welcoming people. <laughs> Sometimes, it depends on where you go. The idea behind this book, this is not the first book that uh, C-SPAN has. Uh, <laughs> So far, so good. <laughs> Welcome. <laughs> I'm, I'm assuming that's a false alarm. <laughs> it's all downhill from yeah. here. <laughs> Reminds me, are you familiar with Larry King, Philadelphia? News oh, Packer? absolutely. Yeah. Larry King was one of the. Uh, the only journalist who followed the Beatles in their first two tours. One time, that just kind of reminded me of a, a story. Uh, the plane, the Beatles plane, was having some, some trouble. George Harrison said, Larry, women and children, Beatles off first. So if that was real, <laughs> all the people on the stage, if we're, we're, of course, we're in town here. <laughs> so again, welcome to Harrisburg. So this is not the first book that uh, C-SPAN has put out. Why this one? What was the idea behind the cover of this? Well, this is C-SPAN's 40th anniversary. Uh, it was started back in 1979 when our House of Representatives first went on camera. And we were thinking about how we could celebrate or mark our 40th anniversary in a way that was substantive. And uh, about a year and a half ago, I went to Brian and said uh, that we had done the collections of interviews before, but we'd never done one that got uh, many of his interviews with presidential historians all in one place. So uh, we took that to our publisher, Public Affairs Press in New York City, and uh, we also decided not to do this book chronologically, but as you mentioned, to bring in another resource, which is our three times over 20 years survey of presidential historians' rankings of the presidents, and we organized this book by how the presidents fared in the 2017 ranking. And just to let everyone know, if you haven't read the book yet, it is not chronological. No, absolutely. It is the, rank, the presidents are ranked from 1 to 44. Notice 45 is not yet ranked. We'll talk about that a little bit later. Uh, but uh, no, we're not going to, you know, not going <laughs> to anticipate where that ranking will, will, will go. But uh, one through f 44, uh, why rank the presidents? Why do it that way? Well, uh, one thing we need to point out in the beginning is that there is no correlation between the ranking and the chapters. And some people pick it up expecting the chapters to reflect where that president is. It's a slice of life from these interviews that have been done over the last 30 years. Why rank the presidents? Susan, why rank the presidents? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's actually something that's been done since 1948. Uh, Dr. Schlesinger Sr. first had the idea to put together a ranking of presidential historians, and he got mailbags and mailbags full of comments of people who wanted to debate his rankings and knew that he was onto something because putting presidents in order by how they succeeded in office gives us, the citizens, something to talk about. And what better thing, if you're in the business that we're in, journalism or you're a historian, than to find a tool that engages people. And ranking the president certainly does that. I'm sure if you look across our rankings, you will have a bone to pick with several <laughs> of them. And what that does is stimulate conversation 
conversation and learning as a result of that. And really, that's why we started ranking them. We did the first one in two 2000. We had just finished a year-long live television production where we went on location to a historic site associated with every single president. When we were finished, we had all of these wonderful anecdotal stories by historians and biographers, and we felt like we wanted to put a capper on it some way. So we went to uh, the three historians that we have put on the cover here, uh, and you probably, if you follow the news, have heard some of these names before. Uh, Richard Norton Smith, who's frequently on PBS, um, Edna Green Medford may not be as familiar. She's at Howard University, historically black college in Washington, D.C., and she's the Dean of Humanities there now. She's a specialist on the Reconstruction era of United States history. And Douglas Brinkley, whom you often will see as a commentator on MSNBC. And also a gentleman who's standing right in the doorway back there, Dr. John Splain from the University of Maryland. And together, we uh, argued over what kind of metrics we might use to judge a presidency. The historians, of course, won. I mean, we, <laughs> we were able to add some thoughts to it, but we really relied on their expertise. And did the first one in 2000, just as Bill Clinton was coming out of office. And again, just like Schlesinger had found in 1948, it got a lot of attention and a lot of people talking. So we decided every time a president leaves office, we would do another, and so we've done three. Americans love lists. We do love lists. Maybe it does have something to do with being able to argue, and it does get people thinking, which is a, is a good thing. In particular, in this book, what the presidents are rated on is their leadership skills. Brian, first of all, how would you just describe or define leadership? Who's a leader? And when I say who, not looking for a name, but what are the attributes of a leader? Well, one of the things that I, uh, there, there are 10 different categories on how they were right. judged. Mm -hmm. And it's everything from uh, uh, moral authority to um, this, uh, the ability to make a decision. I, leaders for me are someone that, uh, the ones that I like the most are the ones that I believe, the ones that, uh, uh, that's a tough one today. <laughs> And also on those that can make decisions, have some vision, and uh, aren't totally consumed by themselves. I, you know, I'm not a. I don't have any right way to define what a leader is. I know one when I see one. I, and you know, that's I. I think a lot of people would define it that way. Uh, leadership skills. People who in office as president, not afraid to make a tough decision, that may not be popular, and is for the good of the country rather than for themselves politically. Would you agree with that? Yeah, and I'm gonna go off go ahead. a little bit here because I'll, I'll give you an example of a leader who's in the audience today. Uh, one of the reasons that we came up today to, to visit this old fossil who uh, was the second hire at C-SPAN and he came, after 15 years, came up here to run the Pennsylvania Cable Network, Brian Lockman, he's sitting right out here and there's a leader. There's yep. a guy, <laughs> and, and, and it, you know, he came up here and put it all together, made it happen, copied directly off of what I did for the last 30 <laughs> years, <laughs> and started his own show, tried to beat the numbers on it, called PA Books, and I'll never get over it. But anyway, that's a leader. <laughs> but I, I think the same skills that made Brian successful are writ large what make presidents successful. You have to have a vision. You also have to be able to communicate that vision. You have to make decisions. And, and you also have to be able to hire well. 
because nobody can do it on their own. So assembling the administrative skills that it takes to bring the team members in to be able to help you carry out your vision are very important, and, and those are really all reflected. Moral authority is significant because people want to follow someone that they respect. And so what we try to do with these very broad categories is, is intentionally make them broad uh, because they have to capture a lot of all the different skills that it takes to make a president successful. I mean, you can find people that are on this list that had half of them quite strongly, but hired the wrong people in their cabinet uh, and weren't able to carry out the things that they wanted to do. Um, so it really takes a blending of all of them to make president successful. Let me add one thing. We're going to talk about James Buchanan, I know, Pennsylvania's own. But uh, the, the very last paragraph of our book with Robert Strauss, who did the Buchanan interview, he writes, I think the differentiation of good presidents and bad presidents, Washington, Lincoln, and FDR, are always at the top of the surveys that historian takes. They were decisive men. You can't come to the top of the ladder and not be decisive. Buchanan was a waffler. James Polk hated him for being a waffler as his secretary of state. He always went back and forth on every decision, and that's how he was a president. He writes, so that's what the next president, whether it's this or succeeding, should learn. At some point, you've got to say, this is the way it's going to be. But I, I think it's interesting, too, when you say that uh, these rankings are based on a blend of mm -hmm. characteristics. I mean. When you said moral authority, one of the first names that popped in my head was Jimmy Carter. Jimmy Carter, I don't think anyone would question his moral authority, but wasn't a great president. Right. Now, I think you have him down as 26 this time, and we'll talk more about that President Carter in just a moment. When I told people that I would be having this conversation with you today, uh, I had five or six people probably ask the same three questions, or one question, with three different, uh, looking for three different answers. Who was first, who was last, and what about Trump? <laughs> so let's take those questions. I, I don't think number one is a big surprise. Abraham Lincoln is rated number one, and he has 907 points. You talked about the criteria that you used, uh, but there, there were numbers placed with those 10 different categories. So Lincoln got 907 points. Why Abraham Lincoln? Let me first say that we, C-SPAN, didn't judge these people whether they were good, bad, or indifferent. It was a group of historians, journalist historians, tried to balance them out a little bit uh, as best we could uh, politically. And they, every time, come up with Abraham Lincoln. I think they're probably, first of all, he wrote more than probably any president in history. And those that follow him closely think he wrote as well as anybody ever has written. Uh, there are so many, there are probably 500 people that make their living off of Abraham Lincoln on a daily basis, <laughs> more than any other president. Uh, and he had a war, a very, very important war that you all know about. Uh, and we know a lot about it. It's just talked about still every day how important it was. Uh, he also was assassinated. And he was the first of our four presidents that have been assassinated. All that combines to make him number one. And he had the worst president before him and the second worst president after him. So it's a little package deal. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's interesting, too, that, uh, and this is in the book, 
you talked about how much Lincoln wrote and used the telegraph system to get his message out and write letters. If Twitter would have existed in the 1860s, Abraham Lincoln may have been the first president to tweet every day. Sure, sure. Presidents have always been very good at, at adopting new technologies. We were talking about Calvin Coolidge just the, the other day. You want to tell the Coolidge story with radio? Well, Coolidge was really the first president in history to use radio. And he did 22 speeches on radio when he was president. And he gets a, there's a certain kind of a cliche rap he gets today about being dull and uninteresting and all that stuff. It depends on where your politics are uh, with Calvin Coolidge. Some people like the fact that he did, he kept things down. He had a balanced budget. He didn't spend a lot of money that he didn't have. But he decided when the radio started, and there weren't many people that had radios, it's kind of like when we started, there were only 3 million people that got C-SPAN on day one, and it went all the way over the years up to 100 million. Uh, but Calvin Coolidge sounded on radio very authoritative, he, and, and people liked his voice. And today, looking back on it, we would have no idea what he really sounded like, certainly in the context of our day. And you can go through the years and pick out every time technology changed, and presidents, politicians, better able to get to uh, people in the country, changed as tele when television came on. The thing that people my age, and there aren't many here that are my age or, or uh, older, uh, our president, uh, our first president that I saw on television, Eisenhower, and then the second one, uh, John F. Kennedy, were black and white. And you don't think about it today. I mean, when John F. Kennedy was assassinated, those four unbelievably difficult days were all in black and white. And then about the middle of the 60s, it turned into color. Mm -hmm. And it made a difference. And when Lyndon Johnson quit on March 30th, 1968, said he wouldn't run again, take the nomination, it was in color. And you can just go on through and look at the technology. And when it changes, presidential communications changes. Mm -hmm. But uh, again, I think that most historians, almost all historians, and even regular people, who aren't historians but follow history would agree that Lincoln is at the top. Every no, survey. Every, sur every mm -hmm. single survey. What in particular made him the best? Well, it's uh, moral authority is very strong. Uh, and also how much he grew in office in a very short time as the crucible of war uh, came upon him. Um, and also the fact that he had excellent communication skills. So you combine the fact that he, unlike the, the, the several presidents before him, as the, the strains of the sectionalism in this country were getting worse and worse, and it was clearly heading towards war, he was the one who said, we're going to fight this war and we're going to win it. Uh, whereas the two people on either side of him kind of were whistling past the graveyard, quite literally. So the fact that he took this on as a, as a, a moral cause and, and figured out a way to win this war and save the nation. I mean, what else would we give him except the number one spot? Mm -hmm. George Washington, number two all the time. He and um, in Lincoln, in our survey, and in most of them, have the highest ranking, one and two, one and two, all the way across. But Washington, like almost every one of the founders, except for John Adams, they lose in the pr one category that we have is pursued equal justice for all. Uh, he ranks 13th in that. and you could argue even lower, uh, but, but uh, you can, cannot get past that. If you've been to Mount Vernon in Virginia, they've done a really excellent job of capturing that whole side of the Washington family story and, and bringing that to life there because 
that plantation would not have been a success, excuse me, without the enslaved labor that worked the plantation. And that is very much also a part of George Washington's history. How do you, and when I say you, I don't mean the two of you, but the historians, compare, say, Washington and Lincoln, even, you know, we're talking uh, 80 years apart. Uh, right. There were big changes oh, in sure. this country during those 80 years. So how do you make comparisons yeah. when there's so much, the country has changed so much, the office has changed so much? Well, you could say the same thing about comparing presidents at the end of the 20th century to the presidents we have today. Right. The, the office of the presidency, this country, continues to evolve enormously. The challenges that they faced as soon as the nuclear age arrived, th that, that office became very much more important than it had ever been before because of the ability to put your finger on that button. None of the early presidents, uh, no matter you know, how many wars they, f they faced, had the possibility to destroy mankind with the push of a button. So it is kind of a parlor game, and we understand that, to compare modern-day presidents to the, the presidents of old. But in fact, if you look at the leadership skills, the important thing is we also ask people in the context of the times in which they served, and that is also one of the 10 metrics. So what we're looking for here is to learn about history, and we are also looking to say, what are the qualities of people who have helped advance this country over time, and who were the placeholders? Okay, so it's no surprise we've already given away the answer to the question. I think question. you knew as yeah, Pennsylvanians, right? Yeah, I think so, right? too. Yeah. <laughs> While Lincoln is universally number one, James Buchanan is universally universally the uh, number 44 on this list. You, you, I think you touched on it. A big thing in the chapter on uh, James Buchanan is that he could not make a decision. He was a waffler. What is I mean, when you look at James Buchanan's background, his resume, he may have been the best prepared person we have ever had going into office. I mean, th the guy was uh, ambassador to, to England. He was a Pennsylvania state representative. Secretary of state. Secretary mm -hmm. of state, a congressman, U.S. senator, uh, ambassador to Russia, I believe, too. But, you know, the guy had a great resume. Why couldn't he make a decision? What was the problem? Throwing in? I'm not talking about the Pennsylvania. That's yours. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're Great. safe now. Yeah, it, it's okay. Go ahead. Well, there are two things to add to President Buchanan. By the way, a lot of these presidents out of the 44 men that have been president are, were very well prepared, especially in the early days. They all were secretaries of state. Uh, <clears throat> they were ambassadors, they were ministers to Russia and Great Britain and all that. They negotiated treaties. Um, but in the he got hit with two things besides being indecisive. Dred Scott decision came during the time that he was president, which was a horrible decision. Almost everybody agrees today. Maybe uh, the worst ever. Maybe yes. the worst ever. That's what it said, that the historian said in the book. The other thing was the panic of uh, 1857 and the money. It's almost always about the money. Uh, very few presidents that have problems financially uh, do well. Either the, if, if, they, if it hits while they're there and they can't improve it, that's going uh, to uh, make it difficult for them to be highly ranked. If they hit, get it bad when they're there and then it's heading up when, they're, uh, when their time is over, that, that won't hurt them so much. But the money is so very critical in all this stuff. And if they have a war... That also changes everything. Some of these presidents on these lists 
had wars, got out of them, and uh, that was a great benefit. Yeah. Uh, Buchanan, when you get the cliff note on Buchanan, it almost is always his waffling, if they use that word, uh, indecisiveness uh, led to the Civil War. Very few talk about the money, 1857. So you have to kind of look at the administration overall uh, to find out how he got his ranking. Robert Strauss tells this story that James Buchanan's great idea for dealing with the, the economic panic was to make coins smaller. Yeah. Use less metal, I guess. I mean, that, really inventive, huh? <laughs> <laughs> Didn't help very much. Hey, I, you know, I love some of the anecdotes in the book. Uh, John Kennedy, I guess he was criticizing someone or asking someone about presidential rankings. And uh, he said, it's not fair unless you sat behind this desk and all the issues that you have to deal with. Uh, but he also said, I don't think it's fair that you put, put people down there with poor James Buchanan. E in a backhanded way, even Kennedy was saying that uh, Buchanan was ranked uh, lower than anyone else. Yeah, <laughs> sorry about that, Pennsylvania. <laughs> There's still time. <laughs> all right, so let's go back to uh, the top five. We, we talked about Lincoln, number one. Uh, Washington, number two, Franklin Roosevelt, Theodore Roosevelt, and Dwight Eisenhower. We're going to talk about Eisenhower in just a moment, but why those other three in the top five? Go ahead, Brian. It's obvious, I think. Uh, <laughs> FDR is FDR, and uh, almost you can hear Republicans and Democrats today on most of those top presidents giving them their due no matter what party they were in. World War II, the way he got us through all that is number one on the list. He again was faced with a terrible economic situation and it took a long time. Frankly, a lot of people think it took a war, but they got out of it and he came up with all the innovative ideas that put people back to work, put money in people's uh, pockets. There's chicken in every pot, I can go on. But uh, and Theodore Roosevelt was I, I think, and we've got some folks here, I know that just spent some time out at Yosemite. Uh, anybody that likes these national parks, give full credit to Theodore Roosevelt. He captured the land, and uh, we now have these terrific uh, national parks. That was part of it. Uh, and then when you get to Eisenhower, again, World War II, as many of you in this room know, because you're as expert on this as anybody, uh, Harry Truman said, I would be your vice president if you would run for president on the Democratic ticket. He thought he was a Democrat, and I think he was quite shocked when it turned out that he was, he, at least for the time that he ran, he was a Republican, uh, and they didn't get along terribly well to late in their years and didn't get back together until the Kennedy funeral. Uh, so the Eisenhower, it's just fairly obvious with those first five, and it gets harder and harder the, when you get down that list, depending on your, a lot of it's today, I think, is, they're the ones in the top ten are mostly the newer presidents, uh, except for George Washington and Abraham Lincoln. But there is, uh, I don't know, asterisk next to uh, Eisenhower's name to a degree in that he has moved up mm -hmm. uh, from your previous surveys. I mean, he was eight, ten, maybe even in the, the, the double digits, but now number five. What changed in the eyes of historians mm -hmm. about Dwight Eisenhower. Well, many of you have probably heard the hidden hand theory that is becoming very popular about Dwight Eisenhower. Uh, he was looked upon and actually 
uh, criticized by John Kennedy when he was running for president about having a very, uh, what we'd use their term laid back, but uninvolved presidency, golfing while the Cold War w was raging between our country and the Soviet Union. Now historians are beginning to believe by spending more time with his writings that it was very much a studied attitude to keep the Soviets at bay, that he was not concerned about the race that was going on between the two countries, while at the same time very much involved in uh, fighting the Cold War on behalf of the United States. What I, I loved about the, the biography that we have of Eisenhower in here, um, which is interesting contrast with the leadership style of our current president, Dwight Eisenhower said, and this is his military black backing, planning is everything. Planning is everything. Plans are worthless, but planning is everything. And he, every week, met with his National Security Council. He had press conferences every single week to talk to the press. And he ran a very organized and systematic government and was in control of it, very much in contrast to the duffer that we see out on the golf course. And it's interesting to think that that was a studied position on his part, feigning the enemy as he might do on the battlefield. Well, Pennsylvania claims Eisenhower. You bet. You can have him. Gettysburg. Gettysburg's wonderful. That's right. Uh, looking at the other side, a, pre a president who has fallen in rankings over the years, Andrew Jackson. What happened with Andrew Jackson? I think a great deal of it is what we're seeing happen all over the country right now, right or wrong, that uh, his past is catching up with him. It's a, a present day reaction to what happened back in those days with Trail of Tears. Uh, he was not a very pleasant man. Uh, at one point, the Democrats in this country thought he was the greatest thing that ever happened. They had the Jackson uh, <coughs> dinners, the Jefferson Jackson dinners, and they're running away from that in many cases. Uh, everybody claims Lincoln, everybody claims uh, uh, FDR and George Washington. So it's a I think it's part of the time. Uh, he, he was not a very friendly person. He won militarily. But I have to say, it's all in the eye of the beholder. Sitting here talking about these guys, it worries me that you think we think we know what we're talking about. Um, <laughs> we don't know any more about these presidents than what's in this book or people we've interviewed. We're not historians. You all have just as much insight as we do. Our opinions don't matter so much in this as much as the ability for us to read what these historians have undercovered and uh, uncovered. And the reason I mention that is because we're sitting in this fabulous bookstore, and this is also a tribute, as all these books have been, to authors. I am not an author. Susan was the person that edited this book. All I did was read the books and interview the people in the book, and that's a fabulous experience. Uh, it's the best experience. But these people that did all this work spent years finding this information and they don't get nearly enough credit in our society right now we're giving a lot of credit to bob carroll for what the fabulous work he's done with lyndon johnson but there's a lot of authors that do every bit as much as he's done on lyndon johnson on other presidents and that's the reason why we're doing this stuff you know lyndon johnson is another one that's uh, fascinating in that right after he left office and vietnam war is still being raged and let's face it, that was probably his downfall. But the farther we get away from the Johnson administration, the more historians have looked favorably upon his accomplishments and his administration. And we'll talk about that in just a moment, but it brings up a point. 
when is a good time? How much time after a president leaves office do historians need to grade that person or rank that person or judge that person in a, mm -hmm. in a fair way? Well, the common view is you need a generation to be able to look back, but it changes so much because things happen. Uh, society changes, our, our value system develops and evolves over time, that changes how we look at things. And also archives open that hadn't been opened in the past and, and getting uh, uncovering troves of, of papers that had not previously been explored changes what we really know about what happened of, of these presidents. So many things change in our society that affect our view uh, that's actually one of the reasons why we do this the f as they are leaving office, because we want to put that marker down. The first view that historians have when the president is leaving office, and then as time goes by, it's interesting to see how they've changed. Bill Clinton, I mentioned, was first surveyed by our historians as he was leaving office right on the heels of the impeachment, and he was in ranked 21, actually still pretty high. Uh, but a uh, good economy and other things uh, that were happening during his administration, the internet economy was rising the l and the like. By the time the second survey happened, he'd moved to 15th place and he remains in 15th. So the distance of a generation uh, maybe makes the impeachment process fade a little bit in people's memory and assessment of him and we're looking more towards others. But then we also have the recent campaign he was involved in and that's factored in. I mean, historians are people too, and they certainly read the news and are affected by what's going on as they're thinking about these people. You know, Woodrow Wilson was another one whose ranking went down. It's, you know, they don't tell us exactly why they moved it, but when you look again, it's the, it's the equal justice category for him. Wilson was a virulent racist, and we have begun to come as reckoning with that in our society and look back and say, listen, that is not good now, and it shouldn't have been good then, and that's factored into the way that historians are looking at these people and they served. Uh, Barack Obama, uh, we go one through 44. Barack Obama is ranked fairly high for mm -hmm. a recent president, 12. Yeah, right. Why? Well, one of the reasons is he's the first president since Eisenhower to win 50% of the vote in both terms. He also completed both terms. The economy got better during the time that he was in office. He's a historic president. Communicator. People liked him. Spoke with moral authority. This survey was taken right after he left office. Who knows where it'll end up down the road. Uh, and again, it's not our judgment here, but uh, he, uh, you know, he's, he's, and he's, the interesting thing to watch is his wife has been the single most successful uh, autobiography writer probably in history, and his is gonna come out uh, either this year, later, or next year, and that will be really interesting to watch because over the years, these biographies have not been that successful. George W. Bush sold two and a half million copies at least for his autobiography, which was quite successful, but Ronald Reagan sold 22,000 copies. And it wasn't because he wasn't popular, it was everybody knew he didn't write it. And, <laughs> and he didn't want to write it, and it was everybody, you know, the fellows that, at uh, Simon & Schuster that wrote it would go out and meet with him in Century City and he just could care less. He wasn't interested in doing his autobiography. So a lot of this stuff matters because we know that Harry Truman's possibly as popular as he is today because of David McCullough. Uh, John Adams was completely forgotten. I wanna, if you don't mind, Scott, I wanna read something I wrote down from the chapter on John Adams. Gordon Wood, who was uh, 
is a very good historian, as everybody probably knows in this room. <clears throat> this is in the chapters, but it would create such a great discussion right now if we got everybody involved in it. Here's what Gordon Wood wrote. John Adams was a realist. He did not believe all men were created equal. He didn't believe in American exceptionalism. Just stop there and see how far that could, discussion <laughs> would go. Uh, there's just a lot we don't know about these human beings unless you dig into these historians' work. And Adams uh, didn't exactly have the best personalities either, from what I understand. That's one of the best wives. <laughs> That's go right. Abigail. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, when, when you're talking about autobiographies, and I don't know personally wh whether uh, this president's ranking has moved or not, but Ulysses Grant. Ulysses Grant, in, everyone talks about his autobiography as being the best presidential autobiography. Right. And you kind of can sense, whether it's from historians or, or not, that people think differently about Grant because it used to be that, oh, the Grant administration had so much corruption and was a weak president, not right. a good president. And that's kind of changed nowadays. He's, he's moved more than any president up in our survey, 11 points. And Ron Chernow's biography is another contributing factor to that because we're thinking about him and, and revisiting some of the things that we knew about him. Hey, I wanted to mention one thing about the Obama th thing that talks about this book and what to expect if you, if you read it. Uh, again, the rankings are one thing. The chapters are drawn from Brian's interview. The interview that we have for uh, President Obama was done by um, a man named Garrow, and he won the Pulitzer Prize for his biography of Martin Luther King. The Obama administration was cooperating with him, and in fact, he had how many hours, Brian, with President Obama? Ten. Ten in the White House, and uh, was able even to review some of what he had written with the president. In the end, the uh, Obamas were not happy with his book because it ended up, this man is a, a self-proclaimed very progressive. And like a number of progressives in society was unhappy with the policies of the Obama administration. And he ends up in his uh, epilogue being critical of President Obama as a progressive. So the administration went from cooperating to trying everything they could to not have people uh, read the book as an authoritative voice. But it stands in juxtaposition to the, 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 the rating of number 12 and the metrics. So what we want you to do is think about how historians as a group might have rated it and compare that with the narratives in the chapter, again, to stimulate your own thinking. By the way, Scott, we mentioned uh, U.S. Grant. You can go right over here to the table and find Elizabeth Semet's book. Uh, and she is, it's a beautiful book. And the book is Grant's memoirs, and uh, they're annotated not from a historical standpoint, but from a, uh, a literary standpoint. Plus, Ronald White wrote a beautiful book on U.S. Grant, as Susan said, uh, Ron Chernow. This seems to be uh, catching on, and I don't know how these folks are selling all these books, but they're, uh, John Marzalak, who <coughs> has the U.S. Grant uh, Museum down at the Mississippi, Mississippi State University, also put out a annotated version from a historical standpoint. So there have been four very important grant books within the last couple of years. When uh, President Obama grants 10 hours of time to a biographer, he obviously cares about his legacy. Do presidents care about their legacy? Oh. I mean, do they care ab no. about these <laughs> rankings? <laughs> yeah. I mean, let's face it, you have to have a thick skin to serve in that office. Would something like a ranking like this bother a president? 
Susan. <laughs> well, but we you don't told have to name names. No, we won't name names. But we why we, not? Well, you told <laughs> uh, us a story uh, about being at Wheatland and and having the folks that run the foundation not being happy about their guy being in the last position all the time. I'd say last is a distinction, at least, and we're in, in, the, in the middle somewhere. Um, He's talked about more than anybody else. Yeah, absolutely. So, of course, not only the presidents, but the libraries, the foundations that now exist to support these, they, they care a lot about how the public sees and views their presidency and work very hard to put them as much as possible in a, in a good light. So, sure. Um, we, I guess I'll tell you that we, we, when we're going out talking about this book, we really didn't approach any of the libraries where people were in the middle and below because we thought it might be a, a bit awkward um, to say, well, you're number 28, but <laughs> could we come talk about your presidency? So we recognized that by using this technique and putting the ratings in, uh, that would be not as uh, pleasant for some. We had one, one presidential library that um, didn't realize that they were in the position that they were and it had invited us and then asked us if we, could we kindly take the numbers down <laughs> and the ratings for the, for the exhibit just because they thought he th their president should be named higher than they were. I'm not going to say the name. but <laughs> Six through ten, uh, Truman, Jefferson, Kennedy, Reagan, and Lyndon Johnson. Uh, Brian, you said that uh, it seems as though a lot of recent presidents end up near, near the top. Uh, Truman, you know, Harry Truman is someone that didn't aspire to be president. I mean, <coughs> vice president, I don't even know if he aspired to be vice president, but an interesting guy, and again, someone that there's been a lot of interest in because of a biography. But what was it about Harry Truman that made him a great president, or a near great president? I think it's the full story of him, going back to World War I when he actually fought in the war and was a leader. And as he came through his life, he led the Truman Commission after the World War II, which was very important to look into how the money was being spent. Uh, in addition to that, I, my, my, my favorite chapter in all of the history books that I've read is the last chapter in the Truman book that David McCullough wrote, because I think a lot of people in politics could take a, uh, a lesson from what Truman did. He went home. He didn't speak for a living. He didn't have a pension. He didn't have secret service. If you go to Delaware Street, the house that he really never owned because it belonged to Bess Truman's parents, and you'll find a little tiny room there that he sat in the last 20 years of his life and read 2,000 books on the shelf. He would walk every day down to where the library was being built, and he did publish his memoir, which was successful, but otherwise he, he did not pop up out of a bed uh, in a television commercial uh, that one famous American politician did uh, promoting uh, a, 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 the a hotel chain a few years ago. And that started this process, which I think has been sad, uh, that it's how, how much can I grab after I leave the presidency? And I think that that's one of the reasons. But he was decisive. He Obviously, this is very controversial, but he dropped the bomb. And he had a terrible economy while he was there for a while. And his popularity when he left was either 23 or 24 percent. It's one of the great stories, com comeback stories. And he didn't do anything to do it. I think everybody else looked at him and said, this guy knew how to make a decision. Kennedy is ranked uh, eighth. Uh, Kennedy, sadly, only had two years in office. How is he ranked so high with only two years to show for it? Well, 
I think some of it may be the demographics of the Raiders. Uh, I mean, they lived through the Kennedy era um, and carried some of the nostalgia of Camelot along to their rankings when they, when they did this. I mean, Robert Dalek, who is the biographer of, of Kennedy, who we, we chose to include in this book, talks about that um, sort of a halo effect of the Kennedy administration that permeated society. But he was in office for only a thousand days. And uh, so there's not a lot to judge on, but incredible speech maker. Um, and one of the other things that's noted about him is that he had the capacity to grow while it's in office. And that's one of the things we didn't talk about in the qualities of leadership, is does this person, even if they come in without all of the experience you might want, have, do they have the capacity to grow with the challenges that they face? And that's what the biographers have said about John Kennedy, is that he learned from the fiasco of the Bay of Pigs and grew while he was in office. Didn't have the greatest record on civil rights, uh, it was actually, it took Lyndon Johnson to be able to carry out uh, that legislation and make it happen within his own party. Uh, but uh, we do look back, uh, certainly on his administration, for some of the foreign policy accomplishments that it had with the Cold War after he learned from the Bay of Pigs. Mm -hmm. uh, Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan, uh, you know, I, I've heard so often here in the past uh, two years that uh, Donald Trump, that Ronald Reagan would be turning over in his grave as a, as a Republican. He would not agree with uh, Trump policies. Then there was a bit of a backlash. People who lived through the Reagan era and said, well, Reagan started the conservative movement that we're in today, even that survives to this, to this day. So I, I was a little surprised to see that Reagan was ranked ninth. What about Reagan? Obviously, he was a great communicator, but what about Reagan? Why so high? Yeah, he's the only modern president in the top 10. Edmund Morris um, wrote a famous book called Dutch. Uh, some of you may have read it. He got in a little bit of, I, I don't want to say he got into trouble, the book got into trouble when he created a fictional character in the book. And nobody, again, I shouldn't say nobody, but very few people liked it. But he, uh, he, he was an, um, he did three, three books on Teddy Roosevelt, but the White House picked him after he asked to be the insider uh, to watch Ronald Reagan up close. And he was invited to come to the White House once a month and he would have 30 minutes with Ronald Reagan, mostly in the Oval Office. And after the, t after the whole thing was over, he couldn't get his hand ar hands around Ronald Reagan. I, I mean, I'm not about to try to tell you why Ronald Reagan's number nine. Uh, I don't know why he is, other than the fact that he was incredibly popular. Edmund Morris told the best story I've ever heard uh, about Ronald Reagan, and that was near the end of his time when he was giving his farewell speech, they allowed Edmund Morris to come to the Oval Office and sit in and watch it. And he was just sitting over to the side. He didn't say anything. And I wish I could tell it like Edmund Morris does, but Ronald Reagan came in, he sat at the desk, and up on the sides so he could see were television monitors. And he's sitting there just looking around at his papers and getting ready to deliver his address. And all of a sudden, his, they, they turned the monitors on. And he looked up and saw himself on the monitor and said, oh, there he is. You think that one through. That was Ronald Reagan right there on that television set, and he knew it. 
and Edmund Morris was there to hear it. So it will always, I think, be a mystery. Uh, you look back on it, if you don't like his politics, if you didn't like Iran-Contra, uh, you can go through that process. But here was a man that was shot and survived, and that was a very important part of the process. And he could communicate. I mean, it always becomes a cliche after a while about all of these presidents. Once somebody starts writing, he was a great communicator. Everybody needs to get into that game. I don't know whether he was or not, but he is number nine, and it wasn't us that put him there. It were these historians, and uh, we'll see how that turns out. Lou Cannon is the biographer. Lou Cannon was a journalist in California who covered him during his years uh, as the governor of the state and his rise politically. And he went on to write five books about Ronald Reagan. <clears throat> and he, he says it's still a mystery to him, even after all of those years. Uh, and one quote that's in the book is from Tip O'Neill, who wrote about Ronald Reagan, that he'd seen the best and worst of Ronald Reagan in one, one day. It was the, the day the Challenger collapsed. We all <clears throat> remember that stirring speech that he gave to the nation. And he said, <clears throat> you often, I think that's true, this is Lou Cannon, you often did see Ronald Reagan's best and worst close together, and Ronald Reagan's gifts often rescued Reagan from himself. Uh, number 10, we did uh, mention LBJ, Lyndon Johnson, and how historians have kind of, uh, the further away from the administration we've gotten, kind of changed the way they look at him. But talk a little bit more about that. I mean. Vietnam, obviously, was a huge factor in Johnson, but why, he's ranked 10th now. Yeah. And a lot of, as, as you said, uh, that there have been, Brian, there's been a lot of written about Lyndon Johnson here in recent years. But what is it about Lyndon Johnson that people have taken a second and third look? Lyndon Johnson's the only one I can talk about from a personal experience. Uh, when I was in the Navy in Washington, uh, they had a collateral duty that you could get if you applied, and I don't, to this day, don't know why I did, but I was single and had time on my hands and became a social aide in the White House. Uh, and uh, all we had to do was have permission of our, I was over in the Pentagon, have permission of the per person we worked for to be able to get away from time to time during the daytime. And so we get a call, I'd have to go to the White House and for those two years that I was there, I often was told that I was the introducer, so I would stand next to him while people coming the, to the receiving line would give me their name, and then I would say Susan Swain, and he didn't have to <coughs> uh, worry about remembering somebody's name. So I physically stood next to him for two years. He totally ignored me. Uh, <laughs> but <coughs> you can bet I was observing. He was a big man. He was 6'3", but he was a big man, and he was in people's face. He grabbed them, shook their hand, put his hand on their shoulder, backed them down. As a matter of fact, you've seen these pictures of people are, are uh, being backed down by Lyndon Johnson. He knew, he, here was the trick of Lyndon Johnson. He knew every member of Congress. He knew their wives. He could call them by name. We have the greatest resource. Everybody does. Uh, that for civics learning, and that is the Oval Office conversation. There have been uh, something like 10,000 of them. We've put them all on our radio station over the last 20 years, and you can find them on our website or go straight to the LBJ library. If you go to the library, they say that he had a thousand 
domestic policy issues that he got passed. Those are the people that love him. Then you've got the 58,000 people that were killed in Vietnam. Those are the people that won't forgive him. Take your pick. He still had such a major impact on the United States. And, uh, you know, as I look back, I mean, I had the, uh, the experience of being around him. Uh, and I just realized what an incredibly big personality he was. And he would literally, in the, in the receiving line, do business. I remember one night he turned, I can't remember if he turned to me or somebody, and he said, I want to go to Texas, get the plane. Now, they had not planned on that. He, by the way, had an airstrip built right at his ranch in the backyard there so he could jump on a jet out of Andrews Air Force Base and fly down there and be there in a couple hours. Uh, and that's the way he operated his presidency all the time. I think it got him in trouble because partially he admitted that we could not win the war in Vietnam. And uh, Robert Carroll is going to do the last of five books. Uh, he's now got this very successful book out called Working. And he still hasn't gone to Vietnam. He says he's going to go there and spend a couple of months so he can get the feeling of the war part of it. And he is yet to make his own mind up as to how he comes down in the long run. So the next uh, couple years, I mean, Robert Carroll's six years older than I am, which makes him 83. And whenever I interview him, I always ask him about that. He's not terribly touchy about it. But he says it's the final copy of the book is years away, which, good luck. Uh, <laughs> I wish he, I'm seriously, <laughs> it'll be fun to find out what his conclusions are. But even if, no matter what he concludes, uh, Johnson's a big man in history. Yeah, Robert Caro is the featured uh, biographer in this book, of course. Brian has interviewed him several times. There's one scene that's included in here that I can visualize. So the, the Kennedys, although he, they, he was selected as a vice president, it was probably a big mistake, ultimately, for Johnson to think he could have power in that position. Coming from Senate Majority Leader, we had all the power to the vice presidency where the Kennedys actually worked to keep him down. One of the ways that they did it, which, which Caro tells, is that he had to get every one of his trips approved in advance by Robert Kennedy. The spending, so uh, and they would send him away on trips when there were critical things like Bay of Pigs going on in Washington, so he couldn't be near any of this. However, so when Lyndon Johnson became president, Hubert Humphrey had to get every one of his trips approved by Lyndon yeah, Johnson. Yeah, you know what you, you know what you know. And he was bitter about it because he wouldn't let him fly overseas. He'd let him fly overseas on a jet. He wouldn't let him fly on a jet in the United States, no which problem. really cramped his style. So let me just, this one story that stayed with me uh, that he told was that Johnson, the big man, was also a bit of a shuffler uh, and carried himself, and the, and the Kennedys actually had pejorative nicknames for him uh, as a, a southerner and with his accent and the like. But what, they, what he says is that on that airplane back from Dallas, he knew he had to walk off that plane and convince the world that he was able to be the leader, and his entire posture changed. Now, those of you who are alive or if you watch the video, you can actually remember him standing up in front of those microphones, carrying himself as he walked across the tarmac with that stance. Another person that I can remember changing their physical stance was Bill Clinton over the time he was in office. You look at the very early, during his campaign, and by the time he was in office for a year or so, he carried himself differently. That posture projects leadership out into the world, and I was fascinated that Johnson understood that on one plane ride and, and found that within himself 
to project that when he got down the steps of that plane? William Henry Harrison. Oh, boy. Okay. <laughs> yeah, we're going to the back end now. Uh, William Henry Harrison died after a month in office. You probably have heard the famous story about uh, being cold on Inauguration Day, and he went out there without a coat on. Anyway, died a month into office. But yet, William Henry Harrison still ranks ahead of John Tyler, Warren G. Harding, Franklin Pierce, Andrew Johnson, and of course, James Buchanan. I know, I love it. <laughs> so does that say something about William Henry Harrison or those the, other guys? The other presidents. So if you think about it, one of our historians said, all the other presidents were net negative. <laughs> <laughs> so it's fascinating. So here's how the survey was conducted. We, the 100 historians, if they did not know anything about that president, they could choose not to answer. And, and uh, about 31 actually answered the category for William Henry Harrison and were something of an expert on that era. So uh, what, what, of course he didn't have much to do in that month, but he came into office having the first modern presidential campaign. You've heard the expression, uh, expression Tippecanoe and Tyler too. He started sloganeering in presidential campaigns. He created a log cabin because he was famous for that and paraded it through the streets and had thousands of people come out and watch his campaign speeches. So uh, that carried into the assessment of him as president, that whole campaign period. Plus, he was an incredible success as a military leader and uh, brought that to the office as well. So I'm sure that played into some of the evaluations. In that time period, that was very important for Plus, the fact that uh, I'm from Tippecanoe County, Indiana, where this... All politics is local. All politics right? is local. <laughs> Plus, he was the governor of the Indiana Territory, successful general. All of that had to play into it, but it was probably the Indiana connection more than anything that <laughs> allowed him to play ahead of the rest of these. Like Mike Pence, right? <laughs> Just like Mike Pence, <laughs> who's the sixth vice president from, the uh, from Indiana, in case you didn't know. Indiana, the key state for many generations. So. I uh, also, just a little trivia here about Brian Lamb. Uh, Susan told me before the program that you have visited every presidential gravesite and vice presidential gravesite. Yes, and I'm weird. <laughs> it's a great teaching tool, though, I gotta tell you that. I think there's a book there somewhere. Well, we've maybe already, not. We've already published the book. It's called Who's Buried in Grant's Tomb? You can buy it right over here. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so as I mentioned very early on, that uh, the third part of that question was, what about Trump, President Trump? He's not in these rankings, but there is a chapter on uh, the president. Now, the book, you went to pub, the, the book just came out last week to the public, but uh, went to went to print, what, uh, beginning November. of this year? November. November, okay. So you had roughly two years of, of the Trump administration. So that conversation, I mean, just like everything with this administration, I, I think one of the historians said that this presidency is unprecedented. Summarize, if you would, what they decided, what they wrote about the, the, the current president. Don't look at me. <laughs> well, they, we, we asked the th our three uh, historians that wrote separate essays in the book and also have separate chapters to sit around and talk about what the atmospherics are around the election of Donald Trump. And th I don't, this doesn't sound like it's kind to the, our historians, they didn't tell us anything that you don't already know. 
And so I don't, you know, we just felt very strongly that because he's still in office that we shouldn't even think about putting him in the survey. And until he leaves office, he won't be in, in a survey, and we don't know when that's going to be. But I promise you that your current emotions about what you think of him for or against are not necessarily going to be where he fits in the survey because we have 10 categories, and if economics are good, you can't get put him down at number 44. So if they're being honest about it, uh, you can't automatically assume he's going to be number 44, 45 on the list. Uh, Cleveland was uh, president twice, for, uh, 22nd and 24th. That's how you get to number uh, 45. Uh, I just waffled in case you didn't. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I was, was your best James Buchanan uh, imitation. <laughs> yeah. uh, but some of the things that were mentioned in that chapter, uh, the way the President Trump, and we talked about it being unprecedented, the way he dominates the news cycle. Well, let, let's face it, every president is at the top of the news every night on the network newscast, 24 hours a day, 24-hour news. But Donald Trump drives that conversation, that narrative, doesn't he? Yeah, he's a master at it, if you think about it. And his use of Twitter is going to be something that, well, politicians will continue to em emulate. Uh, we talked before about someone, a new technology coming in, and, and first maybe politicians are thinking, I'm really becoming criticized by this, and then if you're successful, you figure out how to take it over and use it to your best advantage. He certainly has. And it's also, I mean, we're, we work in the cable industry, the 24-hour news channels and their insatiable need to constantly have news stories is a part of this generation of presidents, and he fills that vacuum very nicely. Uh, so uh, it's a combination of technology changing as well as someone coming in and figuring out how to master that technology to their best advantage. It all started with the OJ sanction trial. Think about that and then move forward and you'll see why what's happening is happening. Explain what you mean by that. OJ Simpson trial went on for nine months. CNN saw it as an opportunity to bump their ratings up and it was very successful. If you haven't noticed, uh, there you got two networks that are prosecuting Donald Trump every minute of every day. They want to obviously run him out of office and one that does not. The one that does not gets heavily criticized for uh, even being in the business, which I find fascinating because the other two, I've never seen anything like it, where when I get up and turn on my television set, Fox is an, uh, ignoring most of the time things that are going on in the Trump administration unless he's talking to them, and the other two are prosecuting him on a day-to-day, hour-to-hour basis, no matter what it is in the New York Times or the Washington Post, they're talking about it. <clears throat> this is not what I thought was news when I grew up in this business. That was, it's, it's a form of news, but it's very financially successful, period. I won't say anymore. Yeah, the ratings have been through the roof since the 2016 campaign. Mm -hmm. We're supporting it. I mean, we're saying with our eyeballs uh, that we want more of this, and so they keep supplying more. So we're almost out of time. I want to give the audience an opportunity mm -hmm. to ask some questions as well. The takeaway from the book, what do you want uh, the people who read the book to take away? I would just say it's very simple. Uh, I hope people that don't know all that much about presidents or the country just dip into it and enjoy these historians. Here's what we've done at C-SPAN, and Susan has been the leader in this, and Rachel Katz, who's somewhere hiding in this room. Uh, she's right there. Front row. <laughs> yeah, she's over here. 
we have a website that they developed in which if you're reading the book and you see something that you don't know, you can go to the website, click on it, and, and learn more about it. You can also go to the website and find out who the historians were that did the rating and, and the, all that. But I can't believe how little I know in spite of the fact that I interviewed these people. I've read these chapters three times at a minimum. I've studied what they say. It's just so much to the history of this country, and we're not even that old that I just hope somebody uses it as a primer to get into this stuff. And it's just, it's fun, it's interesting, and it's also important as uh, for young people as uh, we go uh, to the next generation. And y as you all know, they're not doing as much history now as they used to, at least when I was growing up. And that's why we do this. We are not, as a company or an individual, making any money off of this. Just the publishers. So help the publishers. <laughs> well, <laughs> any royalties from this book we're putting in the C-SPAN Education Foundation, which gives free teaching materials to middle and high school teachers. Um, that's what really motivates us. I think we think of ourselves and our work at C-SPAN as educators, and that's what we want this book to be. Um, I uh, really love Ron Turnell's writing. Uh, his books are a 1,000 pages. And it's, it's hard, you know, when you've worked a long day, you get home and you read a couple of pages, and I don't know about you, but I start, my eyes start drooping, even though I want to learn more. What we wanted to do with this was make history so approachable. The chapters are really conversational, and since each one is a self-contained story, you can put it down and pick it up two weeks later and not have lost the narrative thread because they are self-contained. So that was really our goal is to um, interest people in learning more about this, this great country that we live in. So let's take some questions. I see Alex has uh, a microphone. Uh, just raise your hand if you have a question for uh, the authors. Anyone over here? All the way in the back? <laughs> How about George W. Bush? Where did he come in? Oh, George W. Bush has, um, he's been surveyed twice by the historians, and he bumped out of the top ten this time around by virtue of having one more president on the list. Um, and it, it will be interesting, I don't know how long I will live or how long I will be at C-SPAN, the next survey, what, how, when we get more distance in time from his presidency, but 9-11 certainly to his credit, but the ongoing wars the 2008 financial crisis, his response to Hurricane Katrina, all factors in uh, to how the historians are viewing his presidency. So uh, he's in 30, is it 36, 33. Rachel? 33, 33, thank you, 33, yeah. 33. Question yeah. in the back. Yes, what kept Franklin Pierce from being down below? What was the saving <laughs> thing with his administration? Ouch. Franklin, John Splain is the, our resident New Hampshire guy back in the back there. You're going, no, 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 don't talk about Fra it. He loves Franklin Pierce. <laughs> talk Franklin Pierce lover, we found one. Yeah, talk about Franklin Pierce's presidency, the Wallner biography that you did, Peter Wallner. You know, when it gets down to those bottom five or six or whatever, I don't, I, there's not that much difference between them. Fra Franklin Pierce was just a sad case, I think, more <laughs> than anything. I mean, a, and, um, I always loved looking back on him because Nathaniel Hawthorne wrote his biography that he used in his campaign, and, and uh, I always thought that was an interesting little twist. Uh, he had a sad life. He lost all of his children. Uh, you've sure heard the story about his 11-year-old son that was 11 or 15, 11-year-old. 11, Benny. Yeah, who, who was in the uh, railroad crash before he had been uh, inaugurated, 
and was decapitated. Not only was he killed immediately, and he, and Pierce and his wife lived. So I, you know, I think that's tough. I have never had children, but I, of all my friends that have had children and have lost them before they died, uh, it just they never get over it. And so if you've lost three, you know, and, and I, th that sounds simplistic. He had a finance problem, we can go on and on and on. It just didn't work out too well for him. Here's a, a little bit in the paragraph from Waller, Wallner's uh, biography. There's a lot about Pierce's presidency that is not usually studied because of all the attention on the Kansas-Nebraska bill. That got all the attention, but in reality, there was much going on with regard to foreign affairs that is quite fascinating in the presidency. He definitely had an aggressive foreign policy. He believed in the expansion of the nation and he believed in nationalism, and his goal was to acquire more territory. I also thought this was an interesting thing to learn about him. Um, he died just before his 65th birthday in, in 1869. He, when he died, he was very unpopular. Not only was he an unpopular president, but his actions during the Civil War made him unpopular. He spoke out continuously and loudly against the Lincoln administration, particularly because of the suspension of the writ of habeas corpus. So there's some moral uh, opinioning behind his, his uh, public activism afterwards. Hope that helps a little bit with rounding him out. Question to your left. Um, uh, I was curious to know, um, uh, Herbert Walker Bush uh, had a reputation for um, you know, being very good at calling uh, people on the phone and talking to and them. And writing letters. Writing letters. Yeah. You talk about Lyndon Johnson. Um, so, I, and, uh, so I guess my question is, um, what role do you think that these one-on-one -on -one kind of communications, I think Trump is known for that as well, how much of that do you think really helps a president be effective and a good leader? Well, you know what it helps with is the path to the White House. I mean, with George H.W. Bush, he never forgot a name, and he sent little notes about ev almost every interaction uh, uh, all along the way, and people felt like they had a personal connection to him. And then when he was advancing uh, along his political career, the, the, that warmth or that feeling of connection continued to help him. So it was not only his nature, but it was a very wise political tool to build affinity over the course of his political career. So that personal communication matters a lot. His Christmas card list was in the tens of thousands, I think, uh, th when he was in the White House. Um, and you know, people keep those. They pass them along the line in their families. Uh, they really do help uh, build an, a, an a affinity that, that mattered. You also can't forget uh, the reason he wasn't reelected, read my lips, no new taxes. Uh, but, and no one talks about it anymore, but 19% of the vote went to Ross Perot. Mm -hmm. And Ross Perot made a huge impact. There's only one other independent that ever got more votes than Ross Perot, and that was Theodore Roosevelt, who got 27% of the vote when uh, he ran again in, in 1912. Uh, but, I have <coughs> gotten one of those notes um, from, and I shouldn't have, but from George Herbert Walker Bush, I did an interview with him. The impact of that is, is, is interesting. And I think that probably more than anything, those notes not only help for goodwill, but they also help in fundraising. Mm -hmm. He, I don't know how you have the discipline to do that because he wrote notes to everybody. and. There isn't anybody I know that doesn't get a note from a president, especially if it looks like, and it did, he did it himself. Uh, one of the worst things is get a letter that the robo-pen had uh, signed the name, but he actually did the, you can tell, because he'd turn around the typewriter and, and miss a few licks, and it didn't matter, he'd send them on anyway. So, uh, but
but he was an enormously friendly human being. Very, very, very nice person. Mm -hmm. And <coughs> number 22. <coughs> 20 it, yes, also. he's bookended by the two Adamses, which, uh, and, you know, talk about jumping through history, but, but he certainly does. And uh, I'm interested to see where he falls because during his funeral, we had three days. We talked before about wanting to, to uh, establish a reputation and a legacy. What was that three days of funeral about? but cementing a legacy in the public's mind about the work that he had done. So very much an image building exercise by all the, his family who wanted to honor him, but also wanted to honor his memory in the American consciousness. One more back there. Why did it, <coughs> why did it take on Richard Nixon? Richard Nixon. Whoa. can't find Nixon. He's number 37. 37, okay. Number 37. Exactly. James Garfield is, oh, no, wait, there he is, 37. Oh, sorry, overall ranking, 28. That's why I have these and the prescription's not so good. So in 2017, he was 28. In, in 20, 2009, he was at 27. And in 2000, he was 25. So he's, he's kind of uh, been in that neighborhood over time. And, and you can look at him a number of ways. Of course, Watergate, that says a lot right there. You don't have to go beyond that. And he did have to quit and leave the White House and his own party and eventually ran him out uh, of the White House. It's very interesting. He, he was the one, everybody talks about foreign policy and he opened the path to China. And I've often thought in the last couple of years, what if China buries us in the end? Uh, will he get credit for opening to China? Uh, it, but he did and that was Again, it's one of those things that once it happened, everybody said, what a magnificent accomplishment this is. And uh, it's going to take years to determine whether it was or not. And, you know, a lot of people think, looking back on him, that he wasn't that conservative a president. The tapes, I worked in his administration uh, in an office called the White House Office for Telecommunications Policy. And uh, it's funny, looking back on it, we were the ones that recommended that they open up the process of cable television. And a lot of the people around him were against it. And it was very difficult to get through the little group that was around him. And once you could get through it and he made a decision based on the presentation you made, you often could get what we thought was a, a independent decision and he would go for it. But uh, it's like all these White Houses, you need to know who was around these folks and whether or not they were able to push through it, that's what's so different about the president right now. So Nixon's rankings, and that's what I, I, I like looking at across the board at the categories, because so often they make sense the way they were rated. Um, and, and Nixon in particular, moral authority is his lowest, he's number 42. And uh, his next lowest is relations with Congress, where he is in 37th. His highest, he's number 10 in international relations. So that makes sense with how we view. And then the rest of all, excuse me, the rest of all of his are in the 20s. So it averages out to his position overall. When I worked for him, I was in my 20s and mid-20s, and I remember the feeling. I didn't know enough, um, you know, I mean, I, he didn't know me. Uh, and I, I didn't know enough at that age about what was really going on. And I never will forget when the transcripts came out of the Oval Office conversations, I was sick to my stomach because of what they were saying to effing 
non-necessary comments uh, were devastating to him and should have been. Uh, and I always thought it was very interesting about that Billy Graham was in the Oval Office with him and on those tapes, agreeing with him when he was talking about uh, the Jews. I thought that, and, and somehow or another, he got through those years. But, you know, it's behind closed doors where you determine whether, I mean, it seems to me that's where you really show your <coughs> metal. And the reason I bring this up is because the most honest political person I've ever been around is Lady Bird Johnson. And let me tell you why. And it's easy to pass this judgment that when I, I, was, I did the last television interview with her, and I had one question I wanted answered more than any others, and that was, and I asked it first of her, it was down at the ranch. I said, Mrs. Johnson, did you know at the time that your husband was recording the Oval Office conversations? Because I had listened to all these Oval Office conversations, and I had listened to her answers and what she was saying to him, and her answer was, I did not know my husband was taping them. She comes out of this as as honest as anybody I've ever seen in government because she didn't know that. Nothing thing that she said on the tapes was uh, trying, and he knew, of course, and none of that she did not know and what she was saying to him was straight, positive uh, feedback and information. And you have to listen to him. There's, there's no way I'm saying that. So behind closed doors in these administrations seems to me to be very important. I'm fascinated by the two presidents with the voluminous tapings, uh, Lyndon Johnson and Nixon. That how unfair is that? They, they put the system in and they always knew that they were being taped and they were being preserved for history with that knowledge. But all the people that were on the phone calls and having the conversations had no idea whatsoever. So a bit of uh, un un really unfair inequity in how images are preserved in history, for sure. Okay, up in the front. Two, two real quick questions. Why do you think Pennsylvania has not played a bigger role in having presidents or vice presidents? And two, which president has the least amount of information or is the hardest to research on and get a feel for? I think you are a um, policy nerd and you know that. <laughs> uh, I'm kidding. Policy he's, nerd. No, he's, he's <laughs> been very active in politics. I don't know. Why, why, why do you think? Well, I, I'm not an expert on it at all. I mean, I, I, just, I have no idea. I know why Indiana had six vice presidents. <laughs> because it was, a, it was a really important state politically. Yeah, it's just, it was, it, it was always, almost always matched with somebody from New York or the East Coast. And it may be that Pennsylvania was caught. Pennsylvania had some great founding fathers, as you know. Fabulous. Especially in the earlier, you know, when we were, you know, we're a fairly large state and, and we're very essential in the founding of this country. Yeah. I think I it'll play a, a rather significant role in 2020. Yeah, I'm fascinated um, having spent four years in Scranton. We were talking about this, uh, or my, our friends beforehand, how Scranton has been the place that everybody wants to run to now to uh, have an image of themselves and their working class roots, uh, which is an interesting way f role for that city to play. Well, and Joe Biden's from Scranton. And Hillary Cl Clinton's had Scranton roots that she played up beyond perhaps even what they might have been for her. William Henry Harrison uh, was the governor of the Indiana Territory in Pennsylvania. The, who wants the mic back? What you, but you also had the question about uh, the president that was the hardest to get information oh, yeah. on. Hmm. When George W. Bush went in the White House, you might remember this, he put the clamp on his father's 
uh, archives for a number of years, which means that it'll be the same thing with him for a number of years. And Bill Clinton, I mean, it, the one thing that Mrs. Johnson did that was interesting that uh, nobody else has ever done, they were planned to release those audio tapes from the Oval Office 50 years after his death. She and she decided to release them uh, right away, which really took a lot of courage because you, you take a risk with that. I, I actually think it prevented, it provided uh, Lyndon Johnson a better image. Uh, but there are, you know, the Nixon administration, they, it, it's very complicated. We don't need to go into great detail on but they, they would not agree to certain terms with the library out in Yorba Linda. So they only had his vice president's papers, and his presidential papers were moved out to College Park, Maryland, and sat there for years and years and years. And it's, it's very, there's a huge backstory to it and the infighting in the family and all that stuff, but they eventually decided to allow the feds to come in and run the library. They didn't want the feds running the library. And then they got the, ta the, the uh, um, uh, archives. But you could go to College Park and see them at the time. So they're all different. And uh, as far as I'm, I mean, Bill Clinton's putting them out a step at a time. There's a lot more to come for Bill Clinton. They don't, a lot of them, it's the management, the control that they like, all politicians like on their material. They like to put the good stuff out first and keep the bad stuff. Well, historians are very concerned, and you probably know this about the Obama Presidential Library, which they've announced is going to be all digital. And so historians like to get their hands on things, and there's a lot of concern about not being able to have that. One of the interesting stories about records is actually <coughs> Warren Harding. Our biographer for Warren Harding is, is John Dean. He knows a bit about scandalous presidents, right? But he's and also from the same, his home. Uh, that was his hometown. hometown, yeah. They were from the same hometown. He grew up and he went to Warren Harding High School. And he said uh, when he was offered the chance to write one of the biographies in the American President series on Harding, he jumped at it because he wanted to learn more. Well, he makes the case, and most of our biographers want their guy to look pretty good in history. He makes the case that Warren Harding uh, gets a short shrift from history. And one of the reasons he did that is he actually was able to get access to Warren Harding's papers. The president died very suddenly, as you know, he, he had a heart attack, we believe, in San Francisco when he was coming back on a trip from Alaska and died in a hotel. And uh, apparently all of his papers were packed up and put in the basement of the White House and sat there for decades. And so uh, biographers didn't have access to them. And when he was working on this, he got access to the papers and feels as though he's given a, a, a second chance to look at some of the things that we, we take for granted in the Harding administration and perhaps look at them a little differently. Anybody else? So what you hear over and over these days is divisive, divisiveness. Um, Abraham Lincoln, number one in the ranks, uh, has one of my favorite quotes, which is, I destroy my enemies when I make them my friends. And I wonder if you can comment on any of the other presidents and their approach to working with people across the aisle or people who disagree with them, and whether there's any correlation with where they stand in the rankings. Very deep, that question. <laughs> you know, I, I think it's hard to know, but I think that what we can't see, and we don't know sitting here, is and I, I think back to Lyndon Johnson, he knew how to use the money in the federal treasury to curry favor with members of Congress. He was quite simple about it. Either you vote for me or you don't get the bridge. 
And um, that's always the way they've played it. Some have played it harder than others. And I mean, I can't sit here and tell you wh who played it the hardest, but I think that had a lot to do with how these presidents were able to get things passed over the years. And because, I guess go back to Lyndon Johnson, he knew members of Congress so well, he knew exactly where their soft spots were. And did that help him in the rankings? I have no idea. But to get things done does help people look favorably on members of uh, the presidency. This uh, doesn't get to the second part of your question, but Edna Medford, uh, when we asked them for uh, some context to what we're going through right now, when the other two historians were talking about how much incivility we seem to be living through right now, she's, she's made the point, incivility has always been there in American politics. We sometimes look back to the past and think, oh, we're in a different place now. We're so very uncivil to each other. That's never happened before. In reality, it has always been with us. It's a part of American politics. She goes on to make the point, when scandals occurred in the past, in many instances, the administration simply ignored what was being said or tried to ride it out. What's happening now is there's a real pushback going on every time a charge is leveled. And, uh, and that's happening because a presidency is at stake. We have time for just a couple more questions. Okay. I, I was curious about just your Herbert Hoover. Herbert Hoover? Yes. Mm -hmm. And uh, I heard this some years ago, but he was speaking about the recent president and his appointments. And he said he was criticizing um, Ted Logan, mm -hmm. who won the majority of the votes, and Ted Logan had uh, reform. And if that happens, It's not good, um, but one of the thirty-six. One of the best chapters in this book that I would recommend you read is the chapter that was Richard Norton Smith, who did a book on him. Uh, it was one of the best interviews, and it was a recent interview I did with him. Uh, to, so to go into this book, Hoover led a life outside of the presidency that is incredibly well respected, and there's the story of him feeding the people of Belgium. Uh, and he says, I think, what did Richard say the other night? He, he, he fed, what was it, he fed more people in Belgium? No, I can't remember the. Uh, I don't remember the. But, but he was a very successful, he was a rich man and very successful. And um, why he didn't run earlier, I don't know. I'm not an expert on that. But um, uh, he has a whole other, it's kind of like Jimmy Carter. He has a whole other side to him that people go back to and say, uh, th this was a very fine person, uh, and his presidency didn't work out for him, and I don't know. You know th there is a quote in the, in the chapter, no one really knows, according to Richard, who is a, a, a fine presidential historian, why the fall of 1929 happened. No there one's absolutely sure of it. There's a paragraph specifically to your point in Richard's uh, biography in this book, both parties flirted in 1920 with the idea of nominating Hoover. Wilson told his brother-in-law that it was left to him he would choose as his successor, Herbert Hoover. Hoover talked to some Democrats in 1920, but decided, as you said, he was a bull moose Republican. He was a Teddy Roosevelt progressive Republican. He was not a Stan Patter. 
which was the other wing of the party. In fact, his problem with the Republican Party throughout the 20s and throughout his presidency was from the right wing of his own party. They never really trusted him. If I can, I just want to read one thing in, in the chapter in this book um, on uh, William McKinley. This is off the subject, but it'll give you insight as to why we don't, how little we know, how little I know. Bob Murray, who wrote the book, this is a quote from his interview. William McKinley was assassinated. He was maybe one of the finest human beings who's ever made it to the White House. And we've not talked about him today. And he had a direct impact. He was a tariff guy. Uh, and the assassination didn't give him the kind of visibility that it has other presidents. And out of that, we got uh, Theodore Roosevelt. And Theodore Roosevelt was our youngest president in history at age 42. And then went on to win and then got out and tried to win again and lost. But I think it's just interesting. That, uh, what a quote. One of the finest human beings who's ever made it to the White House and we've never spent two minutes on him. Right. But he put TR in that position because he was trying to quiet him down. The <laughs> vice presidency was worth nothing in those days, and he <laughs> thought maybe he could get him out of his hair because he was a pretty vocal uh, critic uh, in Question. society. Question in the back. First of all, thank you both for coming here today. Oh, thank you. It's fun to be here. And this is for both of you. What's the most important thing that you learned about our president? Most important thing you learned about our president? Bar none for me. Uh, I come from an all-white town, and little town in Indiana, Lafayette, Indiana. It's, it's much more diverse now than it used to be. I had no idea about s the depth of the impact of slavery on this country. And doing these interviews, it just kept coming up time and time again. Then getting it into print, it's just there from the day we started as a country to today. And it, it, it's not a pleasant, good story that we tell ourselves. And I think people should know a lot more about it. And I'm, I'm not here preaching about it. I just didn't know. And I'm afraid a lot of people don't know. Uh, did an enormous amount of damage, and we should not be in any way comfortable about it. Yeah, it, it permeates every chapter. Every, every president chapter. struggled with racial policy in one way or another and continues, I think, to this time. I guess um, without sounding too trite, um, what I keep seeing again and again is how they're human beings. They are, are just flawed human beings like every one of us. And we um, ask them to take on this enormous responsibility or they have taken, you know, put themselves on the path to taking it. And they make mistakes, they screw up, they're fallible. Um, and uh, you, it comes across again and again in the chapters that even George Washington, uh, uh, Chernow writes about how you know, we've now put made him a marble statue in the hallways here, but, but he had, it's wonderful reading some of the characteristics about how he was very full of himself as a young man and studied leadership and grew over time. And really in the, uh, the crucible of the uh, Continental Congress, and fighting the Revolutionary War and uh, on the battlefield where he put himself in front and in harm's way, he grew and developed his own tactics of leadership. Um, and uh, I think learning about them as human beings. Uh, Andrew Johnson, one of my f interesting stories about him that I, I didn't know about. So uh, this guy had served uh, in so many elective offices when uh, he was uh, successfully elected as Lincoln's vice president, the inauguration was in the Capitol. He was so nervous, he drank three full tumblers of whiskey. 
before his inauguration speech. Now, why he was so nervous, he was speaking to the same Congress that he had spoken to for years, but he gave his an, an inaugural address completely blotto <laughs> and made a fool of himself and, what, and left Washington immediately thereafter and didn't come back almost until he was, had to be sworn in as president of the United States. So, I, I mean, that's, that, that, I, those stories and those kinds of, of, of real life <laughs> things that they went through, I, that was my favorite part of working on it. One last one, James K. Polk, we've not talked about, a book yeah. written by John Siegenthaler, who was one of the finest people I've ever known in the journalism business. Are you telling the operation story? No. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead. Think about this. James Polk said, I know I'm the hardest working man in America, and then said something that will sound familiar. Uh, if I didn't have a cabinet, I can run the government without them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> e echoes from the past. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? They're all humans, <laughs> except for a couple. <laughs> How did the only unelected president get picked? Gerald Ford. Gerald came. Ford. He, Has there yeah. been a change? Uh, yeah, I can look at the change. You want to talk about Gerald Ford's presidency? The pardon. It did him in uh, historically. Well, I just say Richard Norton Smith is spending years doing the definitive biography on Gerald R. Ford, and he's about two thirds of the way finished, and it'll probably come out in 2021. And he has found things that we don't know about. I, I think one of the things about him is he comes out as a very decent man, uh, and the one thing that is fascinating that he has gotten into is the pardon and what happened there. And the kind of some of the people that were around Richard Nixon um, weren't. Um, they had Richard Nixon's interest, not Gerald Ford's interest. Once he got in there, uh, and that that's also interesting to know. But uh, Gerald Ford is the only president in history to ever testify before Congress. He said, "I will go up there and I will face the music." He, they wanted other people to go up there and do it for him. And that's, uh, that's extraordinary. Yeah, you also, he was well aware of the political consequences of the pardon. And for the sake of the country, made the decision to go ahead. Talk about leadership. That to me is leadership. He, he fared uh, 23rd in the 2000, moved up to 22nd in 2009, and is back down to 25 in the current survey. His lowest marks, public persuasion. And his other uh, low mark was in vision and setting an agenda. Unfortunately, we are running out of time, so we have time for one more question. First of all, thank you for dedicating your careers and so much of your lives to journalism. Oh, thanks. Thank you very much. You know, can I just say something? He, Brian Lamb and I have the two best jobs in the country. So you don't have to thank us. We've had a ball. In a way, you do. But I'll add the integrity with which you do it and the generosity of spirit with which you do it. That's very nice. Thank you very much. My question is this. Looking at the past 40 or 50 years, do you think our process of electing presidents has served us as well? Are we producing the best presidents we can, mm. and how do you think our presidents compare with leaders worldwide? Remember we asked that question of the historians and they said, bring back the smoke-filled rooms? <laughs> <laughs> I, 
I don't think we've necessarily uh, elected the best people there are. You, and and I, it's not kicking at people that run. They get in the arena. They deserve credit, I guess. Today, with the way television is, I'm suspicious of some of the people that are running. Uh, they're able to raise money because of the Internet. They see the opportunity to get on television and build a following for anything, their next job in government, or get out and then write their books and go on. Um, I'm a little more skeptical than a lot of people when it comes to this stuff, and I just don't know. I'm not – John Splain, who's one of the finest teachers I've ever known or ever been around, taught for years at the University of Maryland and worked with us for all kinds of years, constantly brings up the fact that this is not a democracy, but it's a republic. And I think there's a big difference between a republic and a democracy. So whether this is the best way to do it, I'm not competent to say that, but I don't think we should be Pollyannish about this. Things could be done differently. This campaigning is entirely too long, mm -hmm. entirely too long. Uh, but in a country that has a First Amendment, it's tough to change that. It's tough to stop the, all the incredible amounts of money being spent on it. Washington, in my opinion, is if you just roll back the top of the Capitol, one big money pit. And everybody that comes to Washington wants to get a little bit more for them or to keep what they've got. And it's turned to be uh, – I, I, you can hear the frustration. It's turned to be, in my mind, um, n not the most positive thing I've ever seen in my life. I'm going to let that be the last word. <laughs> <laughs> Think of a huge round of applause for Brian and Susan.